Okay, so we've come to the end. Yay! Um, but I want to ask you all a question. Um, when you come to the end of a story, like if you're reading a good book or watching a movie or whatever, what kind of ending do you like? Do you like a sad ending or a happy ending, a cliffhanger, or like one of those weird kind of endings that you're like, well, it could have meant this, it could have meant that. <laughs> so what do you guys think? How, what kind of ending do you like? I will only be happy if it's a happy ending. Happily ever after? I watched a really depressing movie one after one of my labor and deliveries with and Michael chose it, and I was like, I can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> I like happy endings, but I also like a very neat, tied-up bow ending. Like, everything, like, fits in its place. It's, like, satisfying. <laughs> if, okay. if there's any unanswered questions, yeah. I'm like... <laughs> They give a good explanation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Does anybody like a thinking. sad ending? <laughs> Go ahead, Chief. You know, sometimes when you watch um, Law and Order or one of those shows and they end it and you're like, oh my goodness, like it kind of scares you. Mm -hmm. it, that's mm -hmm. like the opposite of what, what I like. Give <laughs> 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 like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I had to oh, stop yeah. watching This Is Us because I emotionally couldn't handle the like, oh my god, I, I can't do this. I can't. My life is already them. hard enough. In a while. They would upset me. Mm -hmm. uh, it was so good, but you're like, Duh. yeah, I, they purposely do that to you. Yeah. It's like the opposite of what you'd want. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, we are going to work our way through to the end. I know that you all have already read it, studied and everything, but we're going to walk through it tonight. Um, but I want to, again, just reemphasize the purpose of what we're looking at, like in the grand story of the Bible. I can't decide if I want my glasses on or not, because I can't see you all when I have my glasses on, but I can see my notes. So. <laughs> what will you choose? Yeah. Oh. You can go back and forth. There's no okay. wrong. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Um, so looking at the big story of the Bible, like the whole book of Exodus is really um, all about redemption. Um, God rescued his people from slavery. He made a way for them to um, come near, to be saved through blood sacrifice. Um, he gave his commands and covenanted with the people to be their God if, he, if they kept his commands. But then we come to this section, um, these last... Four, or four weeks that we've done um, in this section, um, we specifically see restoration. Um, now, it's not complete restoration like the passage that um, Alyssa had us read at the end last week um, in Revelation. Um, but this is a symbolic restoration of Eden, of a place for God to dwell with his people. And this is the tabernacle. So we're going to walk through these seven chapters by looking through the lens of restoration. Um, and I'm going to be like very outliney tonight. So if you want to take notes or whatever, here's your main point. <laughs> um, God provided a way for himself to dwell with his chosen yet sinful people. 
God provided a way for himself to dwell with his chosen yet sinful people. Um, we're going to look at the time of restoration, the provision for restoration, the recreation, which was not yet a full restoration, but it was built, and then the temporary restoration was completed. And I am going to ask if you all would um, look up some scripture, and then I'll just let you know when I need you to read it, if you don't mind. Um, can somebody get Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 for me, please? Okay, thanks, Amber. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Okay, Kate, thanks. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Okay. Um, Emily, I'll have you get um, John 1, 14. Um, I have a couple more. I might need you guys to double up. <laughs> Um, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Sharon, okay. Um, and then, Sharon, I'm going to go ahead and give you another one because it's in 1 Corinthians also. Um, it's 6.19. Okay, thanks. And then one more, um, Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. Okay, thanks. Sure, Revelation 21, um, 22 and 23. Okay. So, um, as we've kind of discussed a little bit, um, we've noticed that there's a little bit of repetition in um, our reading for this week. Like, oh, we've read this. Um, You could say, why didn't Moses or the author just say, God commanded it and the people did it? (laughs) Um, But repetition signifies importance um, as if to say, don't miss this. Um, not only do we get to see, but the original readers got to see that they followed the exact pattern that was given by the Lord. Um, if we go back to 25, verses 8 and 9 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. So by repeating all these components in their descriptions, we don't have to wonder if they followed through with God's pattern. They did. And this pattern was pointing back to Eden, but also was a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. And they did it. Um, And we kind of alluded to, maybe when we first started, um, like why... We have 31 isolated from the rest of them. So I just wanted to um, speak to that for just a second. Um, If you look at 31 and 35, they're almost repeating just in a different order. Um, And the narrative was basically just rudely interrupted by um, the golden calf story and then how God dealt with them in the aftermath Um, So just remembering that in 32 with the golden calf, that um, was likened to humanity's fall in Genesis 3. This was Israel as a nation. This was their fall. So we see the whole thing being repeated. Um, So that's why we kind of had 31 attached 
to this section, even though like numerically it didn't make sense, but that's why. So, okay, so for the first section, um, we're gonna talk about the Sabbath or the time of restoration. And I'm just gonna be reading snippets um, from these passages. Clearly we're not gonna read through all seven chapters. Um, So I'm gonna pick up in um, chapter 31 in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you and throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Um, And then going over to 35, the first three verses. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So God is commanding the Israelites to keep the Sabbath by not doing any work on them because it is what marks the covenant between him and them. He says, a sign between me and you. So first of all, he told them what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath. Um, So they were to have a solemn rest and to keep it holy to the Lord. What were they not to do? Yeah, no work. Um, So the rest means bodily rest, to not engage in the work that goes on the rest of the week. Um, They were to keep it holy by devoting it to religious duties and service. Um, Sometimes that phrase like religion or religious duties might make us a little bit twitchy in our modern sensitivities because, you know, we're believers, we're not religious (laughs) or, you know, whatever. But it is to be set aside for service to the Lord. And interestingly, when I was researching this, I thought it was um, kind of cool that even though they weren't supposed to do regular work, the Sabbath was never a fast day. It was a feast day, um, which meant, you know, they had to do prior preparation, kind of like when they gathered the manna the day before the Sabbath, they had to get twice as much. But it was celebrating the Lord, serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord. It was set apart for him. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I thought it was kind of interesting. um, Verse 3 there and 35 about not kindling a fire. Um, Many scholars believe that this was just a temporary prohibition pertaining to the time of building the tabernacle. And because this is the only place in Sabbath instructions um, that you see this um, prohibition. Um, 
so even though working on the tabernacle was really important work and it was for the Lord, even that was supposed to stop on the Sabbath. Um, so not kindling a fire meant that you couldn't heat your tools and you couldn't melt the metal and all of that kind of stuff. The Lord wanted the Sabbath to still be just for worshiping him, not even building and creating for him. Okay. Um, so he told them what to do and not to do, but he also told, told them the why of the Sabbath. Um, it points back to creation. In the chapter 31 verses, um, it talks about, In six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So that is going back to the creation account. And this is where restoration comes in. God is showing them that the Sabbath is a regular reminder of when everything was perfect and God dwelt with man. This marks the time of restoration. Whereas the tabernacle marks the place of restoration, this is the time of restoration. And in the Exodus for You book, um, Chester says, both are set apart so that God can meet with his people. What do we take away from this? Um, especially being new covenant people, not old covenant people. Um, there's still a lot that we can learn from this. Um, it's a beautiful reminder that God wants to meet with us and that he dwells with his people. Um, but really, it's even sweeter for us that we are part of the new covenant because Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. Um, whoever had Hebrews 4, could you read that, please, verses 9 and 10? <clears throat> Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Okay. By faith in Christ, we have rest from trying to earn God's favor. Favor. We have rest from justifying or just trying to make ourselves right. And we have rest from the curse of sin. Through Jesus, we get to dwell with God. And the Sabbath is a good reminder of that. Um, moving on, we're going to look at the provision for the restoration. Um, and this... This is where I'm going to start not reading all of it. Um, chapter 31, um, the beginning part, verses 1 through 11, and then chapter 35. And we kind of talked about this in our group discussion. Um, but looking back to chapter 25, when Moses was on the mountain and receiving the pattern and instructions for the tabernacle, it, that was when God told him to command the people to give a contribution for all the materials that were needed for the tabernacle and for the priest's garments. So that included the gold, the silver, the bronze, the wood, the yarn, the precious stones, the spices, the oils, all of the things, the animal skins. Um, and then in chapter 35 is when Moses gives that commandment to the people, and they did it. Um, and as we're going through these last six chapters, that's kind of the pattern that we see for building the tabernacle. The detailed instructions were given in 25 through 30 that we studied at the beginning of this chunk. Um, and then in 35 through 39, 
a detailed description is given of what they did in obedience to the commands and instructions. So it goes, God commanded and the people obeyed. And to me, that's very encouraging because as we look through the Old Testament, there's not a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So it's really encouraging to see the times when Israel did obey and they were fully on board obeying um, what God commanded in this section of Exodus. Um, So let's just look at a couple of the details about the contribution. Um, First of all, it was the Lord's contribution. The text even says the Lord's contribution in multiple places. It was for him. It was for his tabernacle and his worship. But it also came from him. Um, God made the Egyptians favorably disposed to the Israelites um, when they left. And I was just struck this morning because in my reading um, where I'm at right now in my daily reading, I'm starting Exodus. Um, But all the way back when God first called Moses, he told them, I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to make the Egyptians favorably disposed to you so that nobody's going to go away empty-handed. And I had forgotten that God told them that he was going to do that all the way back then and carry it through. And now they have all of this wealth to um, give for the construction of the tabernacle. Um, And we talked about this in our group, um, but I also found it very interesting, the condition that God gave for the contributions that it was to be the free will offering. Um, Whoever is of a generous heart, everyone whose heart stirred him or whose spirit moved him, all who were of a willing heart. Um, The Lord did not want the gifts grudgingly given. And the same is still true today. Um, Could somebody read the 2 Corinthians 9, 7? Okay, and that was when um, Paul was telling them to take up the contributions um, for those that were in need. Um, But it was still at that point, give what you are willing. Give generously, but cheerfully. And, you know, I think about when we give, whether it's like a tithe or giving to serve on a Sunday morning or whatever. Um, For me, and probably for all of us, we need to check our heart. Are are we giving generously? Are we willingly serving? Are we willingly um, giving? Because that is what God wants, willing and generous giving. Let's also look at God's provision for restoration in terms of equipping. Um, I'm going to read in 35. Okay. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. 
and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. The Lord filled Bezalel with his spirit so he could complete all the skilled work. And then he inspired both him and Aholiab to teach and to use the skills that he had given them for the creation of the tabernacle. And if we look back to the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that the Spirit was there, active in creation as well. At the very beginning, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, and then um, the Spirit is what gave the breath of life to Adam. Um, so the Spirit was here, enabling the work in this like recreation, just like the Spirit was um, at the very beginning in creation. Um, and this echo just reminds us that the tabernacle will be a restoration of God coming near and dwelling with his people. And then God also gave people skill and intelligence to complete the pieces of the tabernacle, from construction to craftsmanship to spinning and all of those other skills that they had. Those were all God-given skills. Um, so just in summary of these sections in 31 and 35, God commanded the building of the tabernacle, which was, again, his restoration of his dwelling with man. But he provided all that was needed to carry out that command. And he gave them all the wealth and the material goods. He gave them skill and knowledge for the tasks. And most importantly, he gave his spirit to enable the work. I would even go so far as to say that he gave them the willingness to work. Um, if we look at what um, Jesus tells us in John 15, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, God was enabling them to work, even with a willing heart. Um, but now, as believers under the blood of Christ, again, the same principle is at work. And we kind of talked about this, um, that God dwells in us. We are his temple. Um, but he dwells in us by his spirit. And we're all called to represent him in the world. Um, he's not only given us his spirit, but he equips us for all the service that he calls us to. Um, who has First Peter 4? Okay. 4, 10, 10 and 11. Okay. Um, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. So, again, it's the Spirit at work giving the gifts 
enabling us to do the work that God calls us to do. So by the Spirit and by His grace, we should serve and give cheerfully and um, serve willingly. Okay? Then we get to the longer section, um, 36 through 39, and this is the recreation um, when it was being built. But again, just remembering that it's not a full restoration. So these chapters detail the actual building of the tabernacle and all the pieces. Um, they're almost an exact repeat of 25 through 30, as you probably noticed as you were reading through, um, except for there's a different order and just some wording differences. Um, the instructions are given from the center, the ark, which was the most important piece. Um, but the execution of the instructions in this last section, um, they start with the tent part of the tabernacle. And from what I gathered as I studied, it was most likely just for practical reasons, like having a place to put the things as they were building them. Um, so the wording difference, and Alyssa, you kind of talked about this, that there's action here. Um, so it goes from a command to do it in 25 through 30 to he did it or they did it in this section in 36 through 39. Um, I don't know about you guys, but to be honest, these 10 chapters of Exodus have always been kind of hard for me to read. Um, I get lost in the detailed descriptions and I get frustrated because I can't visualize the stands and their bases and the hooks and bands and how they all fit together. And sometimes I'm just like, what? Um, maybe it's a struggle for you too. Maybe it's just me. Um, but because it is so detailed and so many fine points in it, I think it's really important that we don't miss the point of it and the symbolism of each part of the tabernacle and the priestly garments. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Alyssa did a really great job of walking through all of those um, pieces with us and giving us the meaning and significance. Um, I'm just going to hit a few highlights from them. Um, a little bit of repetition, but the Bible's already repeated it, so I'm going to repeat a little bit too. Um, but as I'm just talking about these different pieces, um, I just want you to think of arrows, like kind of coming from each piece. Um, one that's pointing back to Eden or creation, and then one that is pointing forward to a better fulfillment in Jesus. Um, because if we, as we've said, the tabernacle is meant to be a restoration of Eden. And then we can also see it as a promise of a new creation when everything is fully restored. So I'm going to start with, again, the most important piece, the ark and the mercy seat. Um, just pointing back, it points back to God's presence in Eden. He was there. Um, and then it points forward to Jesus' promise that he will always be with us. And 
that he has made complete atonement for us. Sometimes the mercy seat is called the atonement cover, and it is over the law, and that is just a really good picture of what Christ has done for us. He has covered us with his mercy. He's made atonement for us. Um, one of my very favorite parts, and just the way it's all tied together, um, is the veil or the curtain, especially, you know, the one separating the holy place from the most holy place. Um, I never got this until um, I started studying this time, um, that the significance of it being blue, I think is so cool, um, that that signifies heaven, and again, where God is, and so it points back in that way, and then the cherubim that are on it, um, woven into it, and it's guarding the most holy place where God's presence is, because um, the cherubim were like um, bodyguards, so it reminds us of the sad part of Eden, where when Adam and Eve were kicked out, God put a bodyguard there to keep them out. Um, but we see the chair beam on, um, again, on the mercy seat, and then we see him woven into the veil, guarding the Holy of Holies. Um, but what I love about it is what happened when Jesus died, and that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and that his death on the cross made a way for us and gave us complete access to God. Um, Hebrews 6 talks about this. I know I keep referencing Hebrews and we're just wetting your appetite for the study this summer. Um, it says that Jesus went behind the curtain for us. And um, I just love that. That's amazing. Um, if we look at the lampstand, um, there are several things that point back to Eden and creation. First of all, there's seven lights, and there's a lot of significance with seven in the Bible that it signifies completion and, and perfection, but it's also the seven days of creation. Um, and that creation was complete. Um, and then it's made to be like an almond tree that is flowering and budding and blossoming all at the same time. And in Eden, there was the tree of life. And then if you look forward to Revelation, and even um, in Ezekiel, when he's talking about the new temple that will be built, there's this tree of life imagery mm -hmm. and how it gives fruit every month. It's always in season. Um, so there's a lot of significance. And then even if you just look at the lampstand as giving light, God created the light. That was the first thing that he did. Um, so that reminds us of creation. Um, in the tabernacle, the way it was set up, the light was shining on the table where the um, 12 loaves of bread were that represented Israel. So it was signifying to the people, even though only the priests could go in that part, um, that God's light was shining on them as a people. If we fast forward to Jesus, 
he proclaims that he is the light of the world. And light in that sense means that it's truth. He is the truth of our world. And that's what he brings to us. And also pointing beyond that, um, when we read about the new heaven and the new earth, it says there will be no light because God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, are the light. So um, that is part of that looking forward promise. Um, I already talked a little bit about the table and the bread, but when Adam and Eve were in Eden, there was abundant provision for them. And here is this table in the tabernacle with provision on it. And that is just a reminder that God provided for the people, or for Adam and Eve, in Eden. Um, And then if we look at Jesus, again, one of the things that he proclaims is that he is the bread of life. He sustains us. He gives us life. Um, And also just the imagery of coming to the table and... um, eating with the Lord, um, that we see that in Jesus' interactions with people, um, in the Gospels. Um, he calls people to that. He says, I want to come in and eat with you. So the Lord wants to commune with us, and that is shown um, just through the bread and the table. Um, I really had to think and study a lot about the altar of incense. I was like, what is this telling us? Like, how is this part of restoration? Um, But when in the first part of it, in 30, I think is where the instruction is for um, creating the altar of incense, it's where God tells them what they're supposed to do with it. And so when Aaron goes in, in the morning to kindle the lampstand, and then in the evening to make sure the lampstand is still burning, he's also supposed to kindle the um, altar of incense. And it's that rhythm of morning and evening, um, like in creation. There was morning and there was evening, and the fifth day or whatever day it was. And it's just establishing that rhythm of worship, morning and evening, morning and evening. Um, And then throughout the Bible, like we can see it in Psalms, we see it again in Revelation, um, incense symbolizes the prayers of God's people. Um, I'm gonna actually read the verse in Revelation where it talks about that. Um, It's Revelation 8, 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So it's describing what they created for the tabernacle. It's a golden altar for burning incense. It's before the throne. Um, So I loved that connection that when they're in the throne room, what John is seeing is what God had them create in the tabernacle. Um, And there was 
all kinds of commentary I found about how the incense is connected with the prayers of the people and kind of how that morning and evening is establishing a rhythm for our prayer life, um, the idea of kindling the altar, like putting fire to it, like putting fire to our prayer life, that it's not just like flat requests or rote words, but that our heart is in it. Um, so there was a lot of interesting stuff about um, connecting our prayers with the incense and how it comes up before God and it's a pleasing aroma to him. Um, the bronze altar. Eden was broken because of Adam and Eve's sin. But the Lord is showing here that he has made a provision for them to be near him through the blood of sacrifice. And then, obviously, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, one time for all. So they didn't need the altar anymore um, because the sacrifice wasn't needed after Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. Um, Hebrews 10, I'm not going to go all through that, but it goes into a lot of detail about how Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for us. Um, And then the priests and their special garments, um, the echoing back to Eden, um, men who were made in God's image, God called humanity to have dominion and rule over the earth. And if the tabernacle is like a recreation of that, then the priests are sort of the ones that have the dominion over the tabernacle. They're the ones that are allowed to go in. They kind of run the worship and um, the procedures in the tabernacle. Um, And then Jesus is our great high priest. Again, Hebrews. I cannot wait for us to study Hebrews. Um, In 4 through 8, those chapters um, talk about how Jesus has um, basically created a new priesthood. Um, So it's not the Aaronic order anymore. It's in the order of Melchizedek. And that's like whole nother we're not going into that tonight because there's a lot of that um in hebrews but it is a new priesthood and um it talks about what he does for us as our high priest that he intercedes for us that his um, blood has covered us that he has made a way for us to come to god So nothing in the tabernacle was random. It was a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. Um, Hebrews, again, makes this clear in several places. We saw that in um, John's words in Revelation. Um, I'm actually going to read just a couple of verses from Hebrews um, that talk about how it's a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. In 8.5... 
It says they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on the mountain. And then in 9-11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation, but the tabernacle that they made was based on the heavenly tabernacle that Christ went through on our behalf. So when we read through all the details of the tabernacle, and we get to read through them twice because they're in there twice, Um, Let it remind us of the beauty and perfection of Eden, of the way God intended it, even though that's not the way it is now. Let us meditate on the great length that the Lord went to dwell with his people in recreating through the tabernacle, in sending his son, and what he is working now through the church to prepare for the new heaven and the new earth. Let us plant our hope firmly in the promise of eternity, dwelling with God, that it will be even better than the tabernacle. It will be the complete restoration of Eden. And this should move us to worship, y'all. Like, to think that God went to the great lengths to dwell with us. He kept saying, I want to come near. I'm coming near. Make this thing so I can come near. And then he did come near through Christ. And then Jesus says, but wait, there's more. Like, you will get to be face to face with me. And that just blows me away every time I think of it, when you were asking the question, like, what have we gotten out of all of this? That is what has struck me so much, is that God wants to dwell with us. And that is a beautiful thing. I am so grateful for that. Just a little bit more in this section. When the Israelites had finished the work on the tabernacle and all the things that went with it, they brought it to Moses and he inspected the work. I thought this was really interesting, the comparison of the language here in um, chapter 39 that again ties back to the creation account. Um, In 39 verse 32, it talks about that they completed it. If you look at Genesis 2.1, it says that God finished the creation. Those are the same words in Hebrew. And then... In 39.43, Moses inspected the work that was done. And if you look in Genesis 1, there are multiple places after God created something, he saw that it was good. Those are the same words. Inspected and saw are the same words in Hebrew. So it's just one more repetition that Look what I am recreating. Look what I am doing. It's that similar language. Um, And then 
in Genesis 2, when God calls him to a Sabbath, he says that it says that he blessed it. And what did Moses do in Exodus 39? He blessed the people. So I just thought that, that was really cool, the repetition of the language. So we get to chapter 40, and the glory of the Lord comes. The temporary restoration is completed. So God gave Moses the directions, um, the time and the order that the tabernacle was supposed to be erected. Um, it was supposed to take place on the first day of the second year of the Exodus, which would have been like their first full year of freedom. So I thought that was significant. Like, here I am now, and you are free. Um, so it was the tabernacle. Then he was supposed to set up the most holy place and put the ark in it with the mercy seat. Then the holy place with all the pieces in it. Then the altar and the basin in the courtyard. And then anoint it all and consecrate it. Then take Aaron and wash him, dress him, anoint him, dress and anoint his son. So there's all this order. Um, the anointing is the application of the um, specially prescribed oil. Um, it's for the purpose of consecration or for making either the priests or the items um, set apart or holy for the Lord. Um, I think it's really interesting that Moses is the one that um, is doing all of this. It doesn't say all the people were setting it up. But Moses was the one. He was the one that put the ark in place and put all the pieces in place. And it just emphasizes the special relationship that he had with God, that closeness that, like you said, Rebecca, he was willing to give up his own personal blessing for all of the people. But God is giving him the privilege of being the one to set up the tabernacle. Um, and we again see a repeat of the command and the follow through. God commanded, Moses did it. And then the work was finished. The whole purpose of this section of Exodus would now be fulfilled. God came to dwell with his people. Hold on, let me get there. <laughs> In verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Um, for Israel, seeing the cloud come upon the tabernacle and fill it was reassurance that indeed God was going with them, even after their fall in 32. Remember, they mourned that God said, I'm not going with you because I will kill you. But now he has come into their presence and then that's how he led them. The cloud stayed, they stayed. The cloud moved, they moved. So it had to be, even though it probably was scary, it had to be a huge reassurance to them. God is going with us. We're not going by ourselves. So we talked about this in um, our discussion that Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle now that God's glory filled it. Um, and, and there's some different thoughts on that. We kind of talked about that, like, how did the episode with the golden calf, how did that affect it? 
Um, but it could be that our story ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Like, who could enter the tabernacle? Um, so we're assured, like the Israelites were, that God is with us. And he did make a provision for the priests to be able to go into the tabernacle. And that's Leviticus, where we see all of the different sacrifices um, so that they could come in and um, minister before the Lord and um, make atonement for the people and all of that. But now we, unlike Moses and the Israelites, can draw near right up to the throne of God. Jesus, by his sacrifice, entered into the heavenly tabernacle to make a way for us. And because of what Jesus has done, this is what Hebrews 4.16 says. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, God has come near, and he has tabernacled among us. And that should cause us to worship, which is what we're going to do, right?